This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm really excited to have Nina Taysholes. She is a science journalist and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, which upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat, especially saturated fat, and spurred a new conversation about whether these fats, in fact, cause heart disease. She was named a best book of the year by The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and Mother Jones, among many others. And it continues to be a must read for anyone seeking to understand the amazing story of how we came to believe fat is bad for health and what a better diet might look like. Nina is also the founder of the Nutrition Coalition, a nonprofit working to ensure that government nutrition policy is transparent and evidence-based. Thank you. Work for which she has been asked to testify before the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Canadian Senate. She's also a graduate of Stanford and Oxford Universities and previously served as an Associate Director of the Center for Globalization and Sustainable Development at Columbia. She lives in New York with her husband and her two sons. Welcome. It's so nice to be connected to you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. So what has 2020 been like for you and your family? I'm not sure how old your boys are, but I know with my teenage children, I actually have two boys as well. It has been a heck of a ride. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us, whatever our struggles are, we all put it in the context of, you know, we have not had COVID, we've been healthy, we have a home, we have jobs, you know, my husband and I have our jobs. So We are relatively lucky, but my children are 14 and 17, and I would say every week is an up and down mental health challenge to keep everybody happy, you know, at a time, especially there, my, I have two boys, you know, there's, there's hardly any sports. It's hard to get outside to keep them active, but we were relatively pretty lucky. I'm grateful to hear that. I know having teenage boys myself, it has been really interesting. There's been far more electronics than we would normally allow them to do. And we've had to get very creative with physical activity. I have a swimmer and a football player and with social distancing, I'm in the Washington DC suburbs with social distancing. We've had one who's been able to get back in the pool, thankfully an abbreviated schedule, but the football player, they just do conditioning and which I encourage them to be outside and to do conditioning, but there's likely no chance they're going to be back to physical school at this point. And that's, it's just been a year of challenges for everyone. And much to your point, we have our health, We have a roof over our head. We have much to be grateful for, but excited and delighted to have you here with me. And so I think it begs the question, you know, how did you initially get so interested in, you know, determining how the whole paradigm shifted in the 1950s with regard to the quality of fats that we were being recommended to us as a nation? You know, how did that initially start? Was it a an opportunity that you had that spurned a desire to learn more. I'm curious where that actually started from or stemmed from. Great. So I was a journalist. I was assigned a magazine story for Gourmet Magazine, where I was doing a series of investigative pieces for them. And they said, you need to look into this story about trans fats. I had no idea what trans fats were. This is in the early 2000s. So I took on this challenge and I started to research people about trans fats. I thought it was really interesting. And I, what was most extraordinary to me was that I started talking to scientists, these early researchers, people who were like in the seventies had started talking about the potential dangers of trans fats. And they had, they told me about their experience of having their research, people trying to suppress their research. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the straight, most straightforward way to put it, which is that people would come to meetings and they would be assigned to like to try to yell this person down off a stage or intimidate them with their questions so much that this person sort of would just not want to ever talk at a conference again. Or this woman, Mary Annick, who says that a margarine manufacturer, margarine, of course, is full of trans fats or used to be. This margarine executive came to her office and tried to get her to stop doing her research or the person who called the medical journal editor-in-chief to say, we want you to yank this article from your journal. So there were all these crazy things going on in science that seemed impossible to me to be true. And during my research, I also then started to look at some of the work by other people who had looked at just fats in general. 
And I realized there was just this story of like kind of persistent suppression of science and the science on cholesterol, the science on fat that went back decades. And it just fascinated me that this could be true. I thought it couldn't be true. It couldn't, (laughs) but I was actually given a book proposal to do a book on trans fats. And I thought, I'll tell the story of trans fats. But then I got so involved in this larger story about all fats. So I wrote a book. And actually that book originally, this one, this why it took me so long. I had a whole chapter on margarine. I had a chapter on fish oils. And then eventually my editor said to me, Nina, your book really is on saturated fats. We need to focus on saturated fats. And so my book evolved over time. I didn't set out to write it. And I also didn't believe it when I started it. I thought this must be wrong. I'm going to set out to disprove this. And it turned out I just couldn't disprove it. I mean, it just kept, it kept reinforcing the, the theme, these ideas that, oh, we had gotten it wrong on cholesterol and we'd gotten it wrong on LDL and HDL cholesterol. And it turned out that saturated fats had not been proven to cause um, heart disease or mortality. I mean, it was just this long journey of discovery. And it was a discovery not only of the science, but also the, really of the politics of science. Because I think as uh, anyone understands today, there you know there's the science, but then there's the way the science is interpreted or reported in the media or what gets chosen for review papers or what gets ignored. And that is truly the politics of science. It's all really fascinating because I think most of us would assume that there isn't a trans fat mafia or a margarine mafia, but it really sounds like there was quite a bit. And I found it really fascinating when I was doing my research for this interview, there were people who would present at conferences or at a summit, and there would be literally hecklers that were trying to derail the focus when conversations were started, you know, midway through a presentation so that it would deflect attention to the evidence they were sharing that was completely contrary to kind of what had become the the common narrative that fats are bad, let's eat more seed oils, let's eat all these processed trans fats, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. So for the benefit for many people who probably have never heard of a gentleman by the name of Ansel Keys, who is actually a well-known individual in my household because I talk so much about this in preparation for this talk, I would love for you to kind of talk about where this stemmed from. So this one individual had such an enormous and profound and tragic, frankly, impact on our nation and the food industry and our health. And let's kind of unpack like what he, what initially started is I'm sure in his mind was a good idea, but cherry picking, you know, study data and misinterpreting information and strong arming, you know, major organizations to kind of perpetuate these incorrect and what I consider to be profoundly detrimental ideas. Well, Ansel Keys, I think it's important to understand this, this, the, the larger picture, which is that every idea ha- is born in a moment in time, right? Like we just think it is the eternal truth that saturated fat, you know, must be bad for health and that therefore we can't eat meat and we can't eat, you know, full fat dairy and, and we should, or we should feel guilty if we do so. But that idea does have, it can be pinpointed to a moment in time when it was born and it was born from Ansel Keys. He was a scientist at the University of Minnesota and he had done some really interesting studies on starvation, starvation experiments during the war. He had a keen interest in physiology, but he was doing research in the 1950s and that was a time when people were really obsessed about the dramatic rise of heart disease, which had gone from being very rare in the early 1900s to being very quickly rising to be the number one killer in the nation. In 1955, President Eisenhower has a heart attack. He is out of the Oval Office for 10 days. Imagine that. And, you know, just as we were obsessed when President Trump was in the hospital for COVID, everybody's attention was focused (laughs) on Eisenhower who was in the hospital for 10 days, were trying to recover from this heart attack. And so all of a sudden it became extremely urgent to figure out what causes heart disease, or it had been urgent, but now just an added urgency. And there were really a number of theories that were proposed or that were circulating in medical circles and scientific circles. One of them was that there was too much auto exhaust from the rising number of cars on the road and that caused heart disease. Other people thought it was vitamin deficiencies, other people thought it was a type A personality, you know, the person who yells at everybody all the time and then suddenly just kind of like drops down dead. And then there was Ansel Keys who proposed this idea that it was saturated fat and cholesterol 
that would, the dietary cholesterol in food that you would eat them. It would raise your serum cholesterol. That's the cholesterol you get from your doctor or that number in your blood. And that would clog your arteries and lead to a heart attack. And that was called the diet heart hypothesis. And that was his idea. And he was very strong and he was an overwhelming, overpowering individual as described by his colleagues, that he was able to argue anybody to the death. And he was this very strong person who had an unshakable faith in his own beliefs. And he was able to get his idea adopted by the American Heart Association, which was the premier group, really the only group that was addressing heart disease in the country. And they felt that they urgently needed to provide the public with some kind of solution. In 1960, they said to the public, we don't have enough evidence. We really just, we would love to tell you what causes heart disease, but we really don't know. 1961, Ansel Keys gets on that committee and there's no new evidence that makes his case any stronger, but he is able to convince the committee members they should adopt his idea. So in 1961, the American Heart Association publishes a paper saying you need to avoid saturated fat and cholesterol in order as your best measure of prevention against heart disease. And that is really the first official recommendation anywhere in the world telling people that advice. It is truly like the little tiny nut that grew into a huge thicket of advice that we now have that has echoed that basic advice. Saturated fat and cholesterol found mostly in animal foods, as we know, meat, butter, dairy, cheese, that is what causes heart disease. And instead of eating those foods, you should have, instead of regular lean meat, instead of regular dairy, lean dairy, and instead of butter, margarine, which is industrialized vegetable oils that have been hardened. So Ansel Keys, you know, at the time, there was really almost no published evidence to support his theory. There were a few tiny feeding studies, really small feeding studies that showed the effect of saturated fat on your cholesterol levels. But it wasn't until 1970 that he published his paper, his big seminal paper on the seven country study that he had undertaken in the 15 years earlier. And that was a study where he looked at 13,000 men in seven different countries across the world. And it, it was mainly in Europe, but also in the US and Japan. And he had gone into that study, basically he had had his hypothesis set Actually, first he thought it was fat, total fat that caused heart disease, and then he switched to saturated fat. But he went into the study thinking fat of some kind caused heart disease. And he really, it's fair to say, well, there's so many problems with the seven country study, even though it was in its day a very uniquely ambitious study. Nobody had ever done anything like it to go and sample nearly 13,000 men, what they ate, what their cholesterol level was and to follow them over time. So one of the things I spent like maybe nine months just analyzing the seven country study because it is like the big bang of nutrition science of the, you know, the last hundred years. I mean, there are, it's been cited thousands and thousands and thousands of times. I mean, all of nutrition science kind of telescopes back to this original study, the seven country study. So without going into it too much, but I mean, one of the basic flaws of that study was he clearly cherry picked his countries when he went into it. And he knew from little pilot studies he had done in Europe, where he had traveled around Europe earlier, he knew that in certain countries, they had low rates of heart disease after World War II, and they ate very little, there were very few animal foods, countries like Italy, Yugoslavia, and Greece, all of which made it into his study. And why were they eating small amounts of animal foods? Largely because their economies had been decimated due to the war. In surveys that were done at the time, the people said, what we want is we want to eat more meat. <laughs> but they, don't, they weren't able to have access to their regular food supplies. So we went at a very unusual moment in time when they were not eating their regular foods. But those countries he put into his study. What did he leave out? He left out Switzerland, Germany, France, countries that ate a lot of saturated fats, just think German sausages, French mm -hmm. omelets, and also had very low rates of heart disease post-World War II. But Ansel Keys did not include those in his study. And when asked why, when I asked his, not Ansel Keys himself, but the researcher who he worked most closely with and who inherited his lab, when I asked him why, he said, well, those, he went to countries just where he had an affinity and some friendship. Well, that's, I mean, nice. And again, this was, you know, nobody had done a study like this and maybe they weren't so aware of the need for randomization in order to, you know, to choose your study countries in a randomized way. But that was clearly not a random selection. Mm -hmm. And so when he got results that appeared to confirm his hypothesis, they didn't all confirm his hypothesis, but he had gone into it with this kind of, you know, already having kind of skewed the game in his favor. 
And for a long time, there was just no contrary evidence. Like that was it. You know, people that there was a doctor when Ansel Keys came out on the cover of Time magazine for having, you know, solved the riddle of heart disease in 1961. There was a doctor who said, you know, I disagree, but, you know, what, what do I say? You know, Ansel Keys has his 13,000 cases and I, you know, I, have to, <laughs> I don't have anything to counter that with. Because Ansel Keys had this huge amount of data and because he was so early on the scene, he was really one of the, you know, the first influential re- researcher. It was his idea that stuck and that we've been living with ever since. It's absolutely fascinating because I wonder with the degree of scrutiny that things go through in our current times, if he could have even been capable of being able to push through such data that really speaks to the fact that, you know, manipulating data for the sole purpose of supporting a hypothesis that largely is not consistent with a lot of other information that we now have. I wonder if it had been born in a different time, if that would have ever happened. What I found really interesting as I was kind of preparing for today was, you know, around the time that Ansel Keys and this diet hypothesis, diet heart hypothesis came out, this, this is also when we started to see the food giants and the processed food industry getting actively involved in some of these, you know, private organizations, American Heart Association, that probably prior to that time were much more objective, but you start seeing these supported policies that benefit economically these food giants. And so, you know, in so many levels, and certainly the physicians, the healthcare providers that I've had the honor of working with over the past 20 plus years, I know that they very likely would not have been quite so in, influenced by these you know, private organizations, but I thought that was really interesting. And, and certainly to the point of your book, it sounds like that was a real tipping point in many ways. You know, I talk about how you know, the American Heart Association seal on products in the grocery store, a lot of people assume it then represents that it's something that is also then heart healthy, but in many instances, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. Well, this through line of the influence of food, not only food companies, but pharmaceutical companies in some of our most trusted public health institutions is, I mean, that has been going on since, well, in my book, I talk about how the very first kind of organization of food companies, you know, Standard Biscuit, and I don't know if Kellogg's was around then, but, you know, some of those early companies, they started their, this foundation in 1941, and they really figured out they you know, they become incredibly sophisticated. Mm-hmm. You know, they influence science at every step along the way. They they will work with the science. The best way to do it is to work with the scientists themselves, right? So you actually are influencing the science at its very root and heart when it's when you're forming the opinions of the scientists or influencing their opinions. They also give a tremendous amount of money to the public health institutions that issue this advice to population-wide advice. So for instance, there's a great story that I was, that I've discovered while doing research for my book about how Crisco, which is the maker of vegetable oils and also, sorry, Procter & Gamble, the company that made Crisco, you know, the, what was then replacement lard, but everybody else just knows is, you know, Crisco, the vegetable fat. And then they made Crisco oil they became a big sponsor of the American Heart Association and basically in 1948 and basically transformed. Have you been struggling with longer fast? Do you tend to get headaches, loss of energy, or even cravings? If so, beam minerals can be super helpful. We know that longer fasts can be hard, especially when you're first adapting to them. And fasting has the potential in the setting of a lower carbohydrate diet for us to lose more water in our urine, as well as electrolytes like sodium, which is why it's so important to not only hydrate, but replace those electrolytes. We know that fasting also temporarily depletes us of also potassium, magnesium, calcium, and a whole lot more. In fact, a lot of the side effects you get on longer fasts like headaches, low energy and cravings are usually the result of mineral depletion. That's where Beam Minerals comes in. It's a full spectrum concentrated mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs all in a single one ounce shot of liquid. Taking Beam Minerals at the start of your fast can help you fast longer and more comfortably. And best of all, you can take it in 30 
seconds every morning and it tastes just like water. I also enjoy their Instalite's misting spray, which I use when I'm traveling and I'm not able to stay as hydrated as I would normally like to do. It can also be used as a facial toner. It has electrolytes, trace minerals, some amino acids and ionized water. And it actually can help enhance the bioavailability of your supplements. In addition to that, I've also been happy using their travel products that has some essential grapefruit oils in it that can be antimicrobial. And we all know with the winter weather, cold season, we want to remain as healthy as possible. So give Beam Minerals a try today. It's an amazing tool for enhancing your fast, elevating your electrolytes and helping support healthy immune function. You can go to www.beamminerals.com and use code E. WP at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's www.beamminerals.com and use code EWP at checkout for 20% off. I'd love for you to try these products. I've been really surprised and really happy with them over the last several months. Did you know that our natural ability to digest food declines with age? This has a great deal to do with our body producing fewer enzymes, which are responsible for digesting food. Fewer enzymes oftentimes means more difficulty digesting food as well as bloating and gas. And if you're over the age of 35, like so many of my listeners, your enzyme levels have already begun to decline. That's why I'm a huge fan of enzyme supplementation. And the best digestive enzyme I have ever found comes from my friends at BioOptimizers called Masszymes. Masszymes is the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme I've ever seen or experienced with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor and 300 to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. I take Masszymes with my largest meal of the day, sometimes two, generally three, and it's made a big difference in my digestion. What makes this digestive enzyme most helpful is that it is particularly beneficial in helping to break down protein, not properly breaking down your protein and digesting it creates a variety of problems from bloating to inflammation and beyond. Masszymes not only contains more protease, it contains 13 additional enzymes, including lipase for fat digestion, which work at every pH level from two to 12. In other words, at every stage of digestion, all of this makes Masszymes an ideal complement to any muscle building or fat loss diet. And you can try it risk-free. Their 365-day full money-back guarantee is the gold standard in the industry. And if you don't feel how Masszymes helps you upgrade your digestion and power through your food, their support team will give you a no-questions-asked refund. Go to biooptimizers.com and use code CYNTHIA10 to get 10% off your first purchase. That's www.bioptimizers.com slash CYNTHIA and use code CYNTHIA10 to get 10% off. The American Heart Association into a tiny little backwater group, because remember, heart disease was still new. It wasn't that there were so many cardiologists in that time. They gave millions of dollars to the American Heart Association and transformed it into overnight, really, into a powerhouse. And this is according to the company's own history. And then, you know, some years later, there's the American Heart Association saying you should consume vegetable oils instead of natural fats in order to fight heart disease. And there was some dispute among some of the, I have a letter, you know, referring to dispute between some of the members who of the American Heart Association talking about, you know, why are you posing, why is the, the head of the American Heart Association posing with a bottle of Crisco oil? That, you know, it, that doesn't seem right. But that, you know, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, they continue to accept I mean, I would say somewhere the money that they declare, which is probably much less than what they actually get, is about a quarter of all their funds from the food and pharmaceutical businesses. And, you know, their interest is not for you to have minimally processed whole foods. They don't make any money off of that. And so that's, you know, I think most people don't understand that these sort of trusted institutions have huge conflicts of interest. So, you know, the American Heart Association I mean, they're also, you know, they're also have a conflict of interest. We call it intellectual conflict of interest, interest and that they have given this advice back in 1961. You know, how can they reverse it? 
It seems like that would greatly affect their trustworthiness and people don't want their trusted institutions sort of flip-flopping on advice. And so that's one reason that I think it's very hard for them. They have to carefully back out of that position which they have in some ways. For instance, they no longer recommend a low fat diet. They say, you know, you can have more fat in your diet now, but it has to be, you know, it can't be saturated fat. They're still vehemently against saturated fat. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which we see the the food interests, like they get quite a bit of money from the soybean makers. And what's the greatest source of vegetable oils in the United States is soybean oil. And so they've published, you know, papers on why you have to have vegetable oils, and you, but you can't have saturated fats and you especially can't have coconut oil because coconut oil is especially bad for you. Well, coconut oil competes with soybean oil. It's just, there's just a lot of food industry interest behind this. And then you would ask, well, what about why pharmaceuticals? Why do they take money from pharmaceutical companies? But again, these are companies that don't really, you know, they would rather you be taking medications and purchasing their drugs and devices than they would like for you to get off all your medication and not need any healthcare at all by eating, you know, a more healthy diet. I think that is, sounds really cynical, but I think that is certainly true. I mean, there's some just really blatant examples of that kind of behavior. Well, and I think, you know, as a clinician and certainly working in cardiology, by the time a patient came to me either in clinic or in the hospital, they had documented disease. You know, you you don't do a lot of prevention in cardiology per se, but you're absolutely correct that a lot of the strategies that many of us are talking about now with our patients, they don't utilize the pharmaceutical industry. They don't utilize a lot of these processed foods, but they're actually getting better results because you're getting people off of these highly addictive, highly inflammatory processed foods, and perhaps also, you know, encouraging them to eat less often. You know, I always think about Kellogg's, you know, back in the 1920s that was encouraging people to go from eating bacon and eggs to eating, you know, cornflakes, which what does cornflakes do? It's like, it's just, you know, carbohydrates, refined carbohydrates, which spike your blood sugar you know, spike your insulin, and then you're hungry an hour or two later. So not certainly not conducive with being able to get through your day. So I think it's such a good point that, you know, both of these industries would ideally like us to be dependent on them as opposed to independent, because the independency, you know, impacts them financially. And that's really, you know, going down that rabbit hole of following the money. You know, a few years ago, I went to a a nutrition conference. And if you can imagine this, it's a nutrition conference that was also co-sponsored by the ADA, so American Diabetes Association. And honest to God, one of the sponsors for the ADA was Coca-Cola. And so there were things that were given out to us. And I kept thinking like, this is the last thing I want to be looking at at a nutrition conference. But you're starting to recognize that there are these relationships that really are at odds with living a healthy lifestyle or being able to live a healthy lifestyle, you know, based on what we know now of how these foods impact our health in very negative ways. The American Dietitian Association conference is full of little kiosks like McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts. And I mean, they have all the, they have like all these fast food and junk food at their conferences. I know to the extent that there's now like some kind of break off of the American Dietitians Association of dietitians who really do not want to be associated with those kinds of foods. American Diabetes Association, the, the majority of their board on their board are makers of insulin. So they have a tremendous conflict of interest in that they do actually have an incentive to get their community, their patients off of insulin. So that is, you know, <laughs> they have in their position paper Endure, I would say they, they allow low carb and keto diets in their position paper alongside a plant-based diet or a Mediterranean diet or other diets as well. But if you go to their website, there's, I think I went the other day and I, I could find one low carb recipe on their website. And, you know, they still tweet out things like, you know, have pancakes for breakfast and maple syrup with berries, and then you can cover it with insulin. So it's a bad state of affairs in the sense that these public health agencies truly have been captured to some extent by the food and pharmaceutical industries. But I want to say that it's not just those, I don't think it's just corporate industry and financial conflicts of interest. I think that there is, we've been living for 60, 70 years now with a hypothesis that everyone has truly believed. And with this idea that fat is bad, saturated fat is bad, 
you know, egg white omelets are the way to go to avoid cholesterol. I think many people truly still believe this advice, the basic advice being that people will get healthier if they eat more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. That's pretty much the advice if you go to many foundations, Pew Charitable Trust, the Rockefeller Foundation. I don't, I mean, they believe this advice. This is what has been our kind of surround sound nutritional medical dogma for decades. So I think most doctors believe this. Most people have learned this. Most it's changing, but it's there's just a lot of genuine, honest cognitive dissonance that people have when you tell them actually there are no studies showing fruits and vegetables will make you healthier. They may not be, you know, many vegetables are not bad for health. We could argue about fruit because it's very high in sugar, depends on the fruit. But, you know, the advice to become healthy is very different than what you've been taught or have thought for many years. And people are so close to the food that they eat. It's not an easy idea to change. It's like religion almost. It's, it's something you've lived with. You've made choices several times a day about the food you eat. You have cooked for your children lovingly, hoping, you know, hoping to make them healthy. And it is incredibly hard to think that that might be wrong or that you've made a mistake or that you've harmed your family. Or I mean, it's just, it's very hard to change people's ideas about diet. And I think that's such a good point because I think sometimes for those of us that are more aware of what a nutrient dense diet really incorporates that it's very hard to make those changes. And I oftentimes like to remind people just from the perspective of they're really struggling with the idea that they need more protein and more healthy fats. I just remind them that, you know, in many ways, if you're eating a lot of whole grains and a lot of fruit and a lot of starchy vegetables, you very likely are not particularly satiated. So it's going to stimulate your appetite. And I talk about the hormonal response in the body that you know, you get this appetite dysregulation. You just feel like you're never full, whether that's an emotional or physiologic, you know, feeling. But so many people, when you really look at, as we shift the diet, pers- you know, kind of paradigm, and we're really talking about focusing on, you know, as one example, animal protein and healthy fats, and people suddenly are satiated for the first time, and they don't feel like they keep going back to eat every couple of hours and their weight you know, they're able to lose weight, they're able to sleep better, you know, they're managing their stress better. I agree with you that on many, many levels, when people have to, you know, reverse dogma or question dogma that they grew up in, whether it's, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, whether it's I need to eat three meals a day and mini meals, we just recognize like from a hormonal perspective, what actually happens in the body. And that advice, along with the bastardization of fats, has really contributed to the health problems that we're seeing with increased frequency. You know, I have two teenagers and I was talking to them about growing up in the seventies and the eighties and that it was very unusual to see obese children, really unusual. It was unusual to see adults that were particularly obese. And now that is becoming the norm and largely from the choices that we're making in terms of diet. And I think that's a profound statement. You know, you look at, you know, photos, my grandmother, who's now deceased was born in the 1920s and she was a nurse. And so she talked very openly about, you know, this nutritional shift that happened. And one of the things she talked about was, you know, what she found so troubling was that as people started eating more processed food, she was noticing that there was this, and whether or not she was aware of all of the factors that contributed to that, she just kept saying, my patients are getting sicker. And, you know, she practiced as a nurse until she was in her 60s. But she said, you know, even then, even as I was watching these things kind of evolve and shift and change, you know, there were a lot of things we didn't do. Now, mind you, my grandmother smoked. So there's, you know, definitely things that people didn't know as much about that they continued throughout their lifetime. But that paradigm shift for many people is really challenging to do. Yes. I'm just thinking about this interview with a West Virginia doctor who he actually did a study of his patients. This is maybe 25 years ago, where he followed 75% of his overweight patients to whom he had been giving advice, cut back on fat, eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and get more exercise. And he looked at the data that they looked at all their patients and not one of them had lost any weight. I think these were children. In fact, they had gained weight and they had gained weight even at a faster rate than when they first Mm -hmm. came in. And he somehow 25 years ago, when there was really very little discussion or data on this, just came to the conclusion that he, oh, I know a patient of his came in with the, the Atkins diet book and, and mm-hmm. said, look, I, you know, I, all of a sudden I'm not hungry anymore. And I've lost, wow, I've just lost 10 pounds. And he was open enough to think like, well, then maybe there's another way. I know many, many cases now where if somebody came in with that information or had lost weight and had actually know somebody who just went into their doctor and she's lost over 200 pounds and the doctor mm-hmm. said, 
wow, be careful that diet's going to kill you. I mean, this again, just goes back to the politics of, and I think I wanted to say, you know, what I trace in my book is the development of this idea, the way it becomes institutionalized, why it's so politicized. Why is it that we have so politicized nutrition? It's, you know, it's the food companies, it's cognitive dissonance, but there are other reasons as well. And it's fascinating to see why and how this has evolved over time. You know, why should doctors telling you this diet will kill you when clearly, you know, almost every single major risk factor improves on this, on the diet and people lose, you know, effortlessly lose large amounts of weight and seem to be able to keep it off to a great degree. And so it is mostly in the realm of politics, trying to understand why the world has become so unnavigable for good science. And I think that's what I have been struggling against, you know, with this group that I founded and um, to try to have some influence over the dietary guidelines, but, but also just as a journalist. And I think just average people, when they walk around and they try to talk about what they're eating, <laughs> they, they find that people react in ways that are just so extreme and that those kinds of extreme views have been cultivated by, I think, you know, a, a press and PR environment that creates these that has sort of created these very negative stereotypes of eating diets that are, are, you know, lower in carbohydrates and maybe not as high in, in fruits and whole grains as other people think they should be eating. And I think it's also really interesting on so many levels that, as you mentioned, you know, this polarizing mindset that everything has to be, there always has to be a conflict, you know, it can't be easily accepted. I think that, you know, one of the big things that I've been, you know, following Rob Wolf's book and his work talking about, you know, consumption of meat and how polarizing that can be. And I can imagine it's that much worse on social media for you, but I posted a picture yesterday on Twitter about meat. It was a picture from, we actually had tenderloin at Thanksgiving and not Turkey. And there were some individuals who were very offended by this photo of meat. And so instead of just ignoring the post or not interacting with it, you know, the, I have my DMs closed, but there were, you know, multiple people that were leaving, you know, just argumentative, derogatory, non-productive, you know, non-objective comments. And all I could think of is that's really the environment in which all of us are working in right now. Instead of people looking at things more objectively and saying, hey, maybe there's some opportunity for me to learn. It's like automatically it's this knee-jerk reaction that you have to be wrong and I'm only right. And there's no consensus. There's no gray. Everything is black and white. And the one thing I've come to realize over 20 some odd years of being in healthcare is that when you learn better, you do better. And so being open-minded, being curious, you know, the whole piece of critical thinking that I feel like in many ways has been suppressed and I'm sure that's a whole tangential rabbit hole conversation, but there's this lack of objectivity or there's this denial. You mentioned cognitive dissonance that people aren't just not willing to entertain the possibility that there might be a better answer or that they should question dogma. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, reflects a kind of moment in U.S. evolution of the non-intellectual life in U.S. history that we are living in. We have an environment where the exchange of different ideas, opposing viewpoints is often not welcome. And I think that there is, I mean, I know in the, in the case of low carbohydrate diets and meat, that there are very organized campaigns designed to make it uncomfortable for people to talk about those subjects. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are even sort of censorship campaigns going on and people have experience on various social media platforms where their interviews and their, some of their most popular uh, podcasts or shows on meat have been deleted. And people are, in some, you know, punished in various ways for talking about this. It's something that goes back in time. I mean, it goes back to that conversation we had about the hecklers who'd been hired to try to get people off the stage when they were talking about trans fats at a time when no one wanted to talk about trans fats, you know, especially the vegetable oil manufacturers who were organizing that whole heckling effort. I know that today it's, you know, there's similar kind, there's so many interests lined up against meat that have to do with environmental interests and business interests and religious ideological interests and animal rights interests. So they want to create a hostile environment in which we find it very uncomfortable to talk about that subject. 
there was a series of really extraordinary papers that came out last year, um, a very rigorous analysis of all the studies on meat that really came to the conclusion that the evidence against meat for heart disease, cancer, diabetes was the evidence against it was extremely weak, like to the point where they, the authors concluded you should really eat what you want because the evidence is not strong enough to steer you one way or another. And there was a group of scientists or, you know, of researchers who, you know, who tried to yank publication of that paper before it even came out and then proceeded what I think is a kind of, you know, a campaign to really destroy the reputation of the lead author on that paper. And it was very well orchestrated and funded. It was devastating, all about a conflict of interest that he didn't have from another paper that wasn't related to this paper. I mean, and that kind of activity has two purposes. It, it's designed to get that researcher out of the field. They know that you can be sure or that researcher may decide that this is not a very fun thing to do and I might want to do something else. And I can tell you in researching for my book that I met numerous researchers who had left the field of nutrition or were sitting in tiny corner offices and said, you know, I can't get any money to do any to do any science because I've spoken out against the, you know, sort of the nutrition dogma. But that kind of activity has a second purpose, which is to warn other people. Don't stick your neck out because you will get this too. And I'm asked this all the time. Like, how do you take all the abuse that you get? Because I do get a lot of criticism and, you know, I've had various ways in which I've been attacked. And part of the reason that I don't back down is that I think that sends a message to other people. This is not a rewarding activity for you. One of my favorite ways to take care of my health is with appropriate electrolyte replacement. And my favorite brand is Element. We know that proper hydration leads to better sleep, focus, energy, and more. And we know that hydration isn't just about drinking water. Being optimally hydrated is about optimizing your body fluids ratios. And electrolytes are a component of proper hydration. Element is formulated with a science-backed electrolyte ratio, which includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And with the amount of travel that I do personally and professionally, one of the ways that I stay on track is with electrolyte supplementation while traveling. And we know that in traveling, the atmosphere in planes is kept at 10 to 20% humidity and dry air dehydrates us much more quickly, pulling more moisture from our skin and breath. This means that those of us that travel with some frequency need to hydrate even more. Properly supplementing electrolytes can help to prevent dehydration headaches, support our energy needs to minimize the effects of jet lag, and decrease the risk of blood clotting on long-haul flights. And Element is offering a free sample pack with any purchase. You want to go to www.drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia. That's drinklmnt.com Cynthia. My personal favorite is orange with a close second of grapefruit, but there's lots of great varieties and the free sample pack allows you to try all of the flavors out from the beauty of your own home. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide one, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, 
come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean, science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. And I think there are people in the field who have, you know, who take that to heart. I mean, my income does not depend on grants from the NIH or it doesn't matter, need to get invited to nutrition conferences. So I can say things more openly than perhaps nutrition people in the field of nutrition can. And I think that's also why you see the people who are really bringing this kind of information to light are journalists or academics from outside of the field of nutrition. They've come from other fields that are tangential. It is because there is a sort of focused, organized bullying effort that goes on that takes many different forms, but it, you know, petitions to retract papers, all of that is a way of trying to make people very uncomfortable with their alternative viewpoint. You know, we see, and you see that on Twitter. So, you know, those people who are coming after you, they're trying to make you feel badly so that next time you'll think twice before you post a picture of meat and say, I feel happy about eating this. Exactly. It's interesting to me. I think it took me probably becoming a middle-aged woman to feel more comfortable saying, you know, part of the patriarchy was that I was, you know, raised a certain way. I was supposed to be very deferential. I was supposed to say, yes, I was supposed to put a smile on my face Whereas, you know, now I'm in a position where I speak very openly and have no problems having, you know, uncomfortable conversations or, you know, challenging people. And quite honestly, I also think there's beauty in just blocking people. Sometimes you, there's no point in having a discussion with someone that is, you know, the degree of vitriol and nastiness doesn't justify anything other than, you know, blocking them so that they can no longer pepper my, my timeline with comments that are completely and woefully inaccurate and inappropriate. So again, like I mentioned, I'm sure that you are far more savvy with this than even I am. I want to pivot just a little bit and get back to the fat piece only because I think it's important for people that are listening to really understand what's happened over the last 60 years. So with the changes in the vilification of fats and this focus on more carbohydrate, grain-focused, starch-focused diet, You know, one of the things I found really interesting was that one of the things I read was, you know, our protein and fat consumption decreased by 25%. But interestingly enough, what increased were the grains and starches of over 30%. And what that's actually led to in terms of, you know, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And so it really speaks to the fact that, you know, the assumption is made that if we are consuming less protein and fat, that, you know, these things should be getting better. They're actually not, they're getting worse. People aren't satiated. There's more hormonal dysregulation in the body. So it's much, much easier to gain weight and to, you know, put yourself at risk for a lot of these metabolic diseases. You know, this metabolic flexibility is a term that's used quite a bit now, but we have a largely metabolically inflexible population. And that's a huge concern, you know, seeing that shift in individuals, health and welfare with these dietary recommendations and changes? Yeah, the kind of heart of the question here is, we have these national nutrition policy called the U.S. Dietary Guidelines that started in 1980, in which they pretty much adopted the whole position of the American Heart Association. So low in saturated fat, lean meat, low fat dairy, emphasized fruits, vegetables, and grains. At that point, it was just grains, not particularly whole grains. And did that make us fat? Is that policy responsible for disease? And that is a bait that people have. And what is the evidence that it has? And well, let me start with most people believe the dietary guidelines did not impact America because nobody follows them. That's the argument that is used to kind of exonerate them, to which I would say, well, actually, if you look at the best available government data that's taken on food availability, and then there's the account for loss. And so they say that's food consumption. So it's not just, this is data that does not come from self-reported dietary questionnaires, which are very unreliable. That, so this more reliable data shows that since 1970, which is when they measure it from, that Americans 
have changed their diets dramatically. We have, we eat 25, 35% more fruits and vegetables. We eat about 30% more grains. We eat 90% more vegetable oils. This is 2014, this data runs to. So if you, in every category that you look at, we have increased the things that we were told to increase and even increased leafy greens. If you look at the vegetables, it's not starchy vegetables, it's leafy greens we've increased. And we have simultaneously decreased everything that we were supposed to decrease. So we eat 28% less red meat and 35% less beef. We eat 19% less butter, about the same amount, less uh, fewer eggs and fewer animal fats altogether. Um, so we had done an amazing job of following the guidelines. If you look at food availability data, We've also increased our carbohydrates by around 30% and decreased our fat as a percent of calories by about 25%. And saturated fats, as I said, well, animal fats altogether have gone down around 18 or 19%. So these are huge shifts. It follow the guidelines 100%. And so people who say that we don't follow the guidelines are instead looking at this index of the USDA, which issues the guidelines, U.S. Department of Agriculture, which issues the guidelines. They came out with an index and they say, this is what we're aiming for. And this is where Americans come in. We're aiming for this much vegetables and Americans only come in here. Well, part of this data is deceiving because they lifted their targets for vegetables in 2005, I believe it went from two cups a day to two and a half cups a day. So partly Americans are, they're moving up, but they're still, we can't keep up with the targets. But mainly it's just that when they first set these targets of how much fruits, vegetables, whole grains, dairy you should be eating, they were so dramatically different than what Americans were eating at the time. I mean, Americans, if we can trust these statistics, were eating 39% of their calories as carbohydrates in 1965. And then the guidelines came along and said, you need to eat between 51 and 54% of your calories as carbohydrates, right? So Americans had to ramp up their carbs to meet the guidelines. And we had to ramp up our fruits and vegetables, which we weren't eating less, much of. So yeah, we haven't made it to the guidelines, but we're moving in the right direction. We've been moving in the right direction. It's just the original targets were so incredibly ambitious. Americans really did not eat that way. They ate a lot more meat. They, you know, so then we're told, oh, you're not meeting the guidelines. You're not meeting the guidelines. Well, it's because the guidelines were like this draconian program that was given to America. And just adding to my argument is the data that comes from large NIH funded clinical trials that were on the guidelines where they literally gave people the pyramid or the dietary guidelines themselves. And they said, please follow this diet. And they've done several of these trials. One of them had 49,000 women in it called the Women's Health Initiative. And those women stayed on that diet for seven to eight years and they could find no health benefits. So they found that people can comply with that diet, eat less meat, eat less saturated fat, no butter, but they could not find any health benefits. And they follow these people to actually be able to measure, you know, cardiovascular mortality, can this, this, that the Women's Health Initiative was powered to measure cancer outcomes. No prevention of cancer could be seen, no prevention of diabetes, no prevention of obesity. So it turned, you know, if even in experiments where they put people on the diet and have a control group to compare it to, which is the highest quality science you can get, they could not find that the dietary guidelines could prevent any of the chronic diseases that they were meant to prevent. And so now what is evidence that they may have made us fat? Well, I think that, you know, what we don't have hardcore evidence that, I mean, we kind of do in the sense that all of America has become fat. <laughs> we have followed the guidelines. When the guidelines were launched in 1980, 4% of men had obesity and 7% of women had obesity, adults. So now 42.4% of American adults have obesity. Well, and we have followed the guidelines. We have increased our, again, we've increased our carbohydrates by 25 or 30%. So that's kind of like a big experiment we've just had there. But I think that the more rigorous evidence comes from the, you know, the dozens now of randomized controlled clinical trials that show that when people reduce their carbohydrates, when they reverse out of the dietary guideline recommendations, their health improves. They eat more protein and natural fats. They, as you say, have been saying they are more satiated. They don't feel a need to eat as much. They don't have the hormonal impact of eating so many carbs or the kind of blood sugar up and down, up and down, up and down that comes with eating, you know, sugar or things that turn to sugar in your blood, which include fruit and whole grains, all that turns to sugar in your blood. And then that creates sugar highs, mm -hmm. which then become sugar lows when you want to eat again. So 
those experiments show that, you know, the vast majority of people are able to, within weeks, um, reverse their diabetes, reduce their blood pressure, or reduce most major cardiovascular risk factors, including inflammatory markers. So I think that evidence shows that for reversing out of the high carbohydrate dietary guidelines makes people healthier. And therefore, you can somewhat sort of make a logical leap that probably increasing those carbohydrates was at least one of the things that led to the obesity and diabetes epidemics. It's interesting. I interviewed Dr. Kate Shanahan a few weeks ago on the podcast. And one of the things that she feels strongly has really influenced a lot of the obesity and metabolic diseases is just the use of seed oils. So the soybean oil, the canola oil, cottonseed oil, which really proliferates throughout the processed food industry. I'm curious, I mean, have your eating habits or frequency of going out for dinner, I know COVID aside, probably not doing a whole lot of that, but has this influenced the way that you choose to eat based on, you know, the research that you did for this book, or were you already eating a pretty, a non-standard American diet to begin with before you started doing all of your research? Well, so I was a vegetarian. <laughs> I mean, I was the kind of vegetarian. I mean, I guess you'd say I was sort of a pescatarian where, but I really like, I didn't eat red meat. I did not eat. I tried to avoid cheese. I wouldn't touch butter. I mean, there's just like, I really mostly ate fruits, vegetables, and grains. And I made my own bread. You know, I was, I had a pasta salad for lunch every day. And so I had a very different diet than I do now. I also wrote a lot about vegetable oils in my book. And there's a particularly scary and fascinating chapter. And at the end of chapter nine, I write about the effects of heating those oils, what happens when things are fried in them and restaurant fryers causing massive oxidation products. And that really affected my desire to go out in restaurants because almost all restaurants use soybean oil. And ironically, now that we've taken trans fats out of the food supply, those oils are even more dangerous I won't get into the whole explanation, but you can go into it in my book. And I don't eat fried foods in restaurants anymore because I know those oxidation products will enter into my body and then pass through the blood-brain barrier. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. Those are highly industrialized products that go through many, many steps to be made. And I, I would avoid them like the plague. There's now, I think that there is a little bit of evidence, or at least there are kind of mechanistic models and some suggestion that they might fuel obesity, maybe not be the major cause of it, but certainly interact with the cells, mitochondria. Anyway, I obviously, I am no longer a mainly fruits, vegetables, and whole grains person. And I, you know, I've changed my diet. I remember I would eat meat out, but it took me a while to cook meat on my own. And, you know, it just, and I'm not very good cook. (laughs) I was a great vegetarian cook. Like I was, and I also used to make I used to be a great baker. Like I made all my friends wedding cakes and I loved baking. And now I have to say, I miss that. I really feel it's strange when you start to eat protein and fat and you just like, you're just so happy eating something simple and then you're full. And so all of my, the energy that I spend around food, I mean, I used to calorie count and all that and think about it. I don't have as much energy around food anymore. I just sort of want to eat something that tastes good and fills me up. And then I want to get on with my day. I love that explanation because, you know, as we kind of evolve, shift and change, we'll sometimes that it it also involves our relationship with the food. I too was what I would describe as a, I just ate poultry and fish for years and years and years. And when I got a dog, it completely shifted my perspective about eating mammals. And so last year I got very sick, spent 13 days in the hospital and on week two, do you know, the only thing I thought about was a burger. I wanted beef. And since I left the hospital last March, I mean, I have now incorporated some exotic meat into my diet. And I really credit that for, you know, being able to heal from being in the hospital. But I think it's interesting how our relationships with food will change. And I too struggle when I go to restaurants because I either need to you know, remind myself that maybe this is the one time that I'm going to eat a salad dressing, or I'm just not going to have salad dressing because I know there's a seed oil in it. There was a statistic that I saw that suggested that when we ingest seed oils, it can actually take up to two years to clear it out of our mitochondria. So it causes some cellular inflammation and damage. And so when I learned that, I was like, it's one of those things I sometimes wish I didn't learn some of the things that I learn because then it's, I'm really the wet blanket when I go out to eat. So I was curious how you kind of handle that. And certainly with COVID, you're probably not doing as much of that as you did before. 
Now, I want to be super respectful of your time. I would love for listeners to be able to connect with you, obviously read your book, we'll include all your links, but you know, really having the opportunity to impact public policy and the transparency that you're trying to bring to the government organizations is just so laudable. I'm so grateful for your contributions and the work that you're doing. But for those that want to connect with you, what's the easiest way to do so? Well, there's my website, ninateichels.com, and you can send me a message there. I do respond sometimes on Twitter, which is at Big Fat Surprise. If you want to see the work we're doing on the guidelines, it sort of depends when this show comes out because the guidelines are going to come out in a matter of weeks. But the nutritioncoalition.us is our website there. And if you hit the take action button, there's a really great way to kind of connect very quickly with your elected representatives to let them know what you think about the guidelines and how they should be limited. So you can go there. And I encourage you to do that because even for people who have their own health, you know, they feel like they're on their own health journey and that's getting better. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are literally just have no choice about eating government food, kids who get school lunches, school breakfasts, women, infant, children program, hospital food, programs for the elderly. Those are really captive populations that don't get a choice about what they're served and they are being served, you know, more than half their calories is carbohydrates and seed, industrial seed oils only. So it would be really good to have a policy that serves everybody in our country, even those who are not fortunate enough to make their own choices. So I encourage people to do that. Yeah. And then I think I've been involved in this group. I'm going to probably start writing another book pretty soon. So I'll go back to um, spending more time over at ninateichels.com. But really the place I spend the most time on social media is Twitter. And where if you're a troll, I'll ignore you. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably much safer that way. Are you able to share what your new book is going to be about? You know, not yet. Okay. Fair enough. I thought I would ask. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's really been fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.